Okay, listeners, just before we get into the episode, I just wanted to let you know that we had some audio issues in the first half before the trailer. I was setting up my mic, figuring it out, and the volume was a little bit squiffy, so there's some peaks and some static, and if you wish to avoid that, then you can jump to around the 10-minute mark of the podcast, and you should be able to hear our second half where I managed to figure out some of those problems. So if that is a concern for you, it is a little bit loud, uh, maybe just bump the volume down a couple notches, or like I said, head to the 10-minute mark, and you should be a-okay. Enjoy! Welcome to the Nothing to Fear podcast, a weekly horror movies podcast hosted by three people for the very first time, not in the same room, thanks to COVID restrictions, but recording from three separate locations in the great province of Alberta. My name is Billy Schultz. I'm your host, as always. And we couldn't go, you know, we couldn't just let this momentous Christmas day go by without giving our listeners a little bit of a treat, a little bit of a present, a little bit of a Christmas present with this very special episode, but we'll get to what we're talking about in a minute. For now, I am joined by Luke Mason, who is safe in his home. How are you, Luke? I'm doing well, thank you. Is Alberta great? It's, I think so. Okay. It's okay. All right. Six out of no. ten, probably. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Alberta sucks. I just find it... <laughs> a lot of things about Alberta just seem so provincial. <laughs> Very good. I have often compared Alberta to uh, as the America of Canada because mm. sometimes we act like it. But anyway. Well, I'm more even joined... like the Texas of Canada. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can I introduce our third friend? I'm going to. It's Alex Wan. You heard him already. But how are you doing, Alex? I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Safe in my bedroom right now. And yeah, lo- looking forward to trying this out for the first time. This this being a remote recording, not anything else. <laughs> not anything else bedroom related, just podcast recording. It's my first time. For the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are all like this is I feel like we're truly a 2020 podcast now as this is coming out on Christmas Day. We are a 2020 podcast because we are remote recording. And sad to say, folks, I have gone back in the closet. to Oh, record, no. Which. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't get past it without making a joke and there we've done it. We made the joke. It was hilarious. 10 out of 10 people laughed and we are we're going to talk about a very special Christmas movie for this Christmas Day episode of Nothing to Fear. If you listen on the day it comes out. Merry Christmas everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. So, we are watching the movie titled Black Christmas, which I found because I was looking for Christmas themed horror movies and it was either this or the ginger dead man. And I think we landed on this one cause it seemed a little bit better, but do you know anything about this movie? Either of you, Luke, why don't you go first? Well, when you first said black Christmas, my first thought was, Oh, is this a Tyler Perry movie? And then my second thought was, <laughs> this has got to be an SNL <laughs> sketch or something, <laughs> but right. No, it's a slasher film from the 70s, and it's Canadian, apparently. So that's all I know. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, I, I feel it's like harder to make jokes without the same without you two in the same room because <laughs> it's de- a little bit harder yeah the delay is a little bit weird like i guess now you're not laughing at my jokes technically not just conceptually <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah but before we were laughing out of politeness because right there was like you looked at us and you had these big puppy dog eyes and you looked yeah, so yeah, sad yeah. and we're just like oh we better laugh at these jokes but you know, now you're on the other end of a video screen. It's it's yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the the eyes are too pixelated now. I can't mm. see them. It's true. Yeah. I'm gonna guess this movie inspired Halloween in some way. That's my prediction. Ooh, because '70s slasher movies. Yeah, we're gonna circle back to that. But Alex, what do you know about this? Luke knows two more things about this movie than I do. So I didn't oh. know it was a '70s movie, and I didn't know it was a slasher movie. So. Mm. That's that's what I know about this movie. I, I never mm. heard of it before until today. But you did know it was Canadian. So I know I didn't know it was Canadian. So three things. So three things. So that's that's three things. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> See, can't count virtually either, huh? One, seven, five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that you uh, played it safe by. Saying that it's from the 70s, Luke. You're giving yourself just a decade to work with instead of uh, landing on a year to either side. So it's uh, we're, we're playing it safe now. I can learn, too. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't the too. 60s or the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's either that. Really giving myself a buffer. <laughs> Listen, it was in either the 19th or, 20, or 20th century. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh. Uh, I guess 20th and 21st. See, I even got that joke wrong. Damn it. <laughs> Good job. Is it B- is it BC or AD? Billy. <laughs> Billy, you're yeah. you're behind by a century. <laughs> Sorry, that joke wasn't hip enough. <laughs> Tragically, it was not hip enough. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of Canadian things. Speaking Ooh. of Canadian things, but I actually do know a little bit about this movie because in the limited amount of research that I have done for this podcast, this one comes up a lot for people talking about proto slasher movies and inspiring a lot of the slasher movies to come because it was sort of early on in the genre. It was in the mid seventies and, and that this was, yeah, a little Canadian film that was kind of a sleeper hit when it was released, but grew into, to become a cult status. And other than that, I don't really know too much about it. Other than that, in sort of academic horror circles, this one is talked about quite highly as being like a a proto slasher. So I'm really excited to see where that comes from and, you know, maybe some of the tropes that we will have developed or or learned from watching Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and, I guess, Friday the 13th. But uh, boo, we are going to go watch... The movie, does anybody have any last thoughts before we talk about spoilers and, and trigger warnings and everything? Alex, you got your hand up. Love it. Let's uh, do it. Yeah. So it's it's Canadian Christmas. So it's a great day for Canada. Therefore, the, the, rest, of, the rest of the world, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Canada invented Christmas. <laughs> Those hey, are my only thoughts. <laughs> do we think that this movie is going to be set in Canada or is it made by a Canadian studio or both? I don't exactly know what it means to say it's a Canadian movie. My guess would mean it's a Canadian production company, but do we think it's going to be set in Canada as well? Well, it'd be easier. They wouldn't have to lie in the movie. Yeah, Sorry. true. I spoke before yeah, my hand was up. 
that's okay. We're, we're learning how to virtually do it. I think that this is a Canadian production company. I don't know for the setting. It might be like, you know, s- suburban Ontario mm. playing suburban Wisconsin or something. And, you know, they'll just redress the seats, the, the, the streets or the sets with like an American flag and a New York taxi or something. And they'll be like, it's America. <laughs> but uh, mm. I guess we're about to find out. Set a movie in Canada, you cowards. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're all filmed here anyway. <laughs> exactly. No kidding. It's like so many times it's been Vancouver. We haven't talked about it, so we're going to we're gonna go away. We're going to watch the trailer. We're going to have it, and we're going to come back and spoil the heck out of this movie. If it was 1975 or mid-70s, I hope you're not spoiled by it, but just in case, this is your warning. And as usual, if there are triggering scenes, it might be worthwhile to check out DoesTheDogDie.com to see if there are any triggering moments that we may or may not talk about in our discussion. But until then, we are going to head away, and we'll see you in just a minute. All right. And recording stop. The high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house, too. Your phone's ringing. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Alright, Black Christmas, originally titled Silent Night, Evil Night in the United States, is a 1974 Canadian slasher film produced and directed by Bob Clark and written by A. Roy Moore. It stars Olivia Hussey, Keir Duella, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, Marian Waldman, Lynn Griffin and John Saxon. The story follows a group of sorority sisters who receive threatening phone calls and are currently stalked and murdered by a deranged killer during the Christmas season. All right. Thank you for that, Alex. And welcome back, everybody. Post-trailer, we have just watched Black Christmas. And what an adventure it was. I would love to hear your initial takes before we get into it. And Alex, since you finished reading the synopsis, why don't you tell us how you found it? Yeah, I think definitely it was, it's evident of how influential it is on the slasher genre. And in my opinion, it was exactly what Friday the 13th tried to be, but better. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, we'll, uh, we'll dig, we'll dig into yeah. that. Yeah. And then there, it was cool that there's so many kind of recognizable people like Lois Lane's in this. Margot yeah, Kidder. Yeah, Margot Kidder. Andrea Martin, she was big in the Canadian comedy scene in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. SCTV and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, David Bowman from, what, Space Odyssey? Like Stanley Kubrick's? Oh, is that who that was? Is he the That's blonde guy? 
Yeah, he's Peter. Peter. Oh, right, Peter. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Well, I, I want to dig into to all of that more a little bit. But Luke, I want to hear how you found the the watch to be how you how you thought of this movie i'm gonna assume to no one's surprise on this podcast just given i guess the era and the (laughs) style i found this movie to be quite boring and very much like several of the other movies of this era that i didn't like and for the same reasons (laughs) so i found the mystery to be underwhelming and the decision making of the characters to be (laughs) (sighs) laughably unrealistic although i guess i've come to expect it and the dialogue was absurd and nonsensical and the acting was okay (laughs) it had very little to do with christmas i thought very little to do with christmas (laughs) i i I guess the best way to put it is that broad strokes i was passionately underwhelmed by this one passionately underwhelmed perfect well i can't wait to hear hear you dig into that a little bit as well For myself, watching it, it was immediately evident how much of Black Christmas DNA is in Halloween and is in movies from Wes Craven down the line and just all of the... The, the line, you know, again, we're going to do spoilers, but the line at the end where they fi- they figure out that the calls are coming from inside the house when they when they do the phone tapping part towards the end of it, I just thought, I was like, oh my God, that's like... That's how it starts in Scream, if I remember correctly. And, you know, Wes Craven did Scream. And Wes Craven obviously loves to reference and, you know, smash right through that fourth wall as many times as possible. But just seeing, you know, seeing that the the first person shots when we are following the killer around just very early, the opening shot of Halloween where Michael is, you know, finds his sister and kills her. And just seeing that that is what... I don't know, that is what started it. And then Halloween, you know, uh, John John Carpenter improved on it and, you know, changed it and made it his own was was really cool. And I'm just starting to see connective tissue through some of those things, like the, the police officer, the lieutenant, played by John Saxon, was the same guy who was Heather's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street. And, it, you know, it se- seemed to have always... I looked up his IMDb later because I recognized him from this movie. I was like, it's the same guy and he's playing the same cop. And John Saxon was an actor who did a lot of westerns and a lot of early... Who was Heather? In Nightmare on Elm Street. Who was Heather in she Nightmare She was the... Yeah, who was... Which character was oh, Heather? Oh, the actress... The actress's name was Heather. Uh, Nancy. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, okay. The, I was like racking my mind like, who the fuck is Billy sorry. talking about? Yes. No, sorry. Yes. The the character name was Nancy. The actor was Heather Langenkamp. Okay, so, got it. But but John Saxon, who played her dad as the cop, the like black-haired cop, he was like a big sort of 50s actor. And he was in a lot of horror movies. He's in a lot of roles as like police investigator and stuff. And so when I saw him, I was like, there's... There's no, like, is this a reason why Wes Craven chose him for his police, you know, the lieutenant in Nightmare on Elm Street? Is it like a reference back to this? And sort of watching it with with the idea of there's these other properties that spawned out from Black Christmas, really, you know, I, I found that to be quite interesting. I agree with you, Luke. All the dialogue is really, really, you know, boring. There is, a, the, the, the pace is 
painstakingly slow. They don't discover the first murder, I think, until like 40 minutes into the film, which is forever. And yeah, just like, you know, the, the, the subplot doesn't make really a lot of sense. There's this like subplot running through where there's this 13 year old high school kid that's also been killed. And that just kind of feels like it's like stuck into the movie and it doesn't really end up going too many places. One of the kills happens completely off screen. So we don't even get to see it also like there's a lot of mess in this movie, but the mess that, you know, coalesced. <laughs> Did you notice too that? They started searching like parks and neighborhoods before they searched the whole house where the girl yeah. lived. Okay, so so I don't think they were. Searching I don't know. I'm not, the a parks and neighborhoods I'm not a cop. I'm not a cop. Come on. For Claire, they were they were searching for the for thirteen Claire. year old. No, they weren't. No, but she was on the docket of like we're looking for this kid, but we're also looking for Claire, right? Like they they mentioned that. It's like you didn't search the whole fucking house, <laughs> like the house where she lives. You didn't look in the whole house no. yet. <laughs> How does that? They, they didn't. <laughs> Come so, on. You got to give me no, that. You I, have to give me that here's, one. here's another thing. I didn't even realize that the killer had put her in the attic for the first, like for so long. I thought he just killed her in her room and then left her in there. And then they're like. Yeah, it was like no one checked her room yeah, until. I, I thought that right? too. We don't know where she is. <laughs> and that's what I was so mad. I have so many notes where I was like, why hasn't nobody looked in their room? And they're like, I don't know. Maybe she's with her boyfriend. Well, we talked to her boyfriend. She's not there. Hey, did you, <laughs> did you search the house? Ah, uh, most of it. Good enough. <laughs> and it's not like they didn't know there was an attic. They could. Yeah. So that whole part was like, why is nobody like looking around the, you know, you could maybe make the case that the house mother who is like more more obsessed with finding her hidden booze around like she's not she's obviously not the best house mother for this sorority house but you know she she only knows that to mm. check the attic because she hears the cat up there and that's her down yeah you know so in fairness i will say that i could definitely see several things in this movie that were inspirational to subsequent horror movies i actually got a lot of th like two or three pretty good insidious vibes from different oh, okay. things in this film too as, as well, obviously, Halloween, obviously, some of those more mainstream slasher movies. But I think the way I would frame it is that this movie, you would hear about, you know, prologue or a preamble in a history of film class as an example of a film that inspired several, but wasn't nearly <laughs> as good as any of the movies it inspired, as well as not nearly as good as several of the movies inspired that themselves yeah. weren't very good. So that's how I would say it. Like it's, this film could be interesting to study in a history. And of I think it class, is. But I just, yeah, the plot was just, it, 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 calling it cookie cutter is unfair to small shaped pieces of metal you use at Christmas time. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, yeah, there was so much of this movie where I was like, okay, I can, yeah, I can see that this is the connective tissue. This is the inspirational, you know, glue. And maybe in 1974, then like, that's what that's what people had to watch because they're just coming off of, you know, Psycho and Rosemary's Baby and all those stuff from the 60s. But yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of rough stuff. There's a lot of rough points in this movie. There was one really, really there's one point where I really did laugh a lot, though. And it was the scene in the police office or the station where they're the guy is like not realizing that fellatio is like a joke phone extension and there's just like 
two people laughing in the background for so long while he doesn't get the joke. And like, I was just like, why are they, what's going on? This isn't funny. And then it did that thing where it kept going for long enough that I was, I, I found out that I was actually into this joke and it was pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that scene thinking, okay, this is a little funny, but it's not that funny. <laughs> that guy laughed for like two minutes. He laughed minutes. for so long. <laughs> Which made, it just, I don't know, it made me chuckle because I just, I have, I'm definitely the type of person who, when she laughs at something that's like really, really funny and there's not really a reason why, I will laugh for way longer than people think is normal. Or I'm just like, I'm just going to need like another minute longer mm. while I keep laughing at this obviously very dumb joke. And well, I think that's also uh, our that's our kind of humor, right? We keep repeating it until someone smiles at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just keep hammering at it till till you get a laugh. But yeah, so yeah, to say that this is a plot-based movie is very strange. It's not really an ensemble. It's more of like, I don't know, there's there's a couple character archetypes that exist in this movie and then they're killed. Yeah. It's kind of right. Yeah, I mean, nothing happened in this movie even close to how it would happen in real life (laughs) like there wasn't even a facade of realism to the decision making at any given point i don't know is that is that how you trace a call back then i was i was yeah like that's about that like that kind of thing could be interesting right sure i don't know it just every decision made by every character was 10 well no like 80 to 90% worse than I as an amateur in all these fields could make now. And so I am left bewildered. It was a bewildering film. film. It makes me what it made me it made me wonder if people's brains were just different in 1974. I know. <laughs> because and I've brought this up before and I whatever I can I'll, t- I'll take the heat of being an elitist on this front, but like movies from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s are mostly terrible. They're mostly really bad. And the reason they're mostly bad is because they're poorly written and the dialogue is so stupid. And un- like, there's just no realism. There's no like even attempt to have like a, a, a kind of a scintilla of real life experience going on for the characters, which I argue modern movies do way better way way better and this is just potentially a bias obviously we're talking about art so it's all taste no but for it. I, that every every single line in the movie black christmas i was like well that was pretty dumb <laughs> so you know just fair my enough. taste totally fair i i i appreciated the the shots the shots were cool although i have to say <laughs> i have never met a trellis that could support a grown person <laughs> <laughs> so so i don't know about that shot at the beginning of the movie actually that would be something that would i think of all of the things that annoyed me about this film the one that annoyed me most legitimately was just the non-explanation of the killer like there we got no resolution to his relationship to any of these people and I just thought that that was kind of boring like it just felt gratuitous in that way i liked that part of the movie actually I like that they didn't reveal anything about the killer and we don't we're left not knowing and obviously at the end you're left knowing that the killer's still out there. I thought that was I thought that was a cool way of doing this villain. As poor as the film was, like and as slow as it was, I think I was pretty mm, invested yeah. in act 3 of it. 
So I, I, I like it. It really like took a long time to build up, and I agree with you, Alex. I kind of like the fact that it wasn't, you know, here's a reason for the killer because and I, I i'm probably speaking out of school on this one i don't i don't really know too much but it seems like at the time you know the idea of somebody just spree killing because they they don't have a reason is not is like the, could be the scariest thing it, it does leave you wanting to be like well why is this killer who i think we barely get a name i think we get the name billy which thanks a lot <laughs> um. <laughs> well, was that the name of the killer, or is that just the name that the killer kept saying? But are we supposed to assume that it, he was saying his own name? I think uh. so. And I like th- that's the other thing is this one didn't have any subtitles for me to read, so I was trying to like read the you know trying to trying to listen to what the killer is saying. But the those phone calls are just so incredibly disturbing and so weird and so like you know bad phone. And it's like screaming and, and yelling and, you know, wailing and making baby noises and growling and stuff. And it's just like, I can, I could really imagine the confusion and the like fear that all these people felt. Mostly it was Olivia Hussey's character who was the one who answered the phone uh, for all the times when the killer was there. I think it, I think it was her the whole time. And her name was like Jane, I want to say. So, okay, I have a kind of a, maybe it's a very boilerplate question then but it's jess i can i your points make sense i think the reason that those things don't really land with me when i'm watching the movie is because the decisions that the characters make pull me out of the narrative so hard like i'm like oh, the, yeah. the the nonsensical decision making is such a it's I, I can't maintain my suspension of disbelief and so i start logically thinking about what's going on and Part of this killer's plan was to hide in the attic with bodies that he killed and just hope that all of the cops forgot to check this room of the house. Well, he obviously got away with it. It's just, it beggars, it beggars belief of, of logic, right? And so when, when now that, that kind of thing I can suspend if we're given like all of these other things that don't wretch me out of my suspension of disbelief and other things, but just the consistent inability for any character to do anything commonsensical it felt like made me think like how does this killer know that they're not gonna check a room in the house where these murders are happening and it also didn't seem like it was necessarily that he was doing all the murders in the attic like there was times when you know he kills barb margot kiddo's character in her bedroom with her like a tool in her bedroom right so there's this this killer isn't even like uh, you know doesn't even hold to the standard methodology right like you know there's serial killers that have a way they kill all the time we've watched enough tv shows and listened to enough true crime podcasts to to hear about like you know the the method the methodology around these some of these killers but one he like strangles the house mother he hits with a big pulley and weight booby trap style he stabs barb with a glass unicorn you know, which, if you know anything about physics, that's just as likely to knock her over as impale her face, right? Like, <laughs> there's the, the chance yeah. that that the like just the angle of that hook and the way it's shaped, that's just as likely to knock her down the the ladder as it is to impale her face. Like, it's just none of the kills made me think, oh, murder savant. He's definitely gonna get away no, with it. No, this guy's not a murder savant. You're right. He should not have gotten away with it because he was super messy. He was leaving. You know. Trace every he seems like he just stayed in the house the whole time, except for, you know, 
from when he climbed into the attic. But are we to assume that before he got into the attic, he was the person that killed the 13-year-old, the high school girl? Like, he killed her on the way to the house? Do we? Did we get... Because I kind of think that might have been... Maybe I just want to tie it together. I guess. That seems like a likely connection, but it's never explained. But kind of counterpoint to that about what you were talking about, Luke. I don't think... Like, obviously, the characters weren't operating at maximum human efficiency in terms of their decision-making, and a lot of what they said and did was dumb. But then in terms of the killer, I, I would argue it's not fair to pin that, oh, this like this killer was doing things like nonsensically and all that. There's like a few shots where very rear window-esque, mm, where yeah. it kind of zooms out like from the street back into the attic, and then you see whoever the first girl who died was. Claire. Claire, yeah. And you see, like, Claire with the bag around her head and sitting in the chair. But it's it's also, like, there's disturbing things where you see, like, the killer place, like, a doll in her lap and something. And, like, it, it's just, like, really weird vibes and makes you feel uncomfortable. And then all those, all those phone calls that are from the killer are, like, super, super creepy. So, obviously, killer's not right in the head. You know, if you're a killer, you're probably not yeah. going to be. But, like, on top of all that as well. So it's like, I think for me, when I watched it, taking it at face value, there's a very deranged, dangerous person in the attic, and they're not going to operate, you know, the way that we rational humans would want that that person to operate. Um, <laughs> the I way we that... rational humans would want a killer to operate. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually did really like the, uh, the villain, which I assume is called Billy, and I, I kind of looked a little bit into the the making of this movie, and it was inspired by an urban legend Ooh. of a series of murders that happened in Montreal. And so it's the babysitter and the man upstairs. So it's oh, like, really? It's mm. something that could have happened and probably did happen, but has since evolved into something like, you know, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. You're right, Alex. He's definitely mentally disturbed and not all he's not operating on all all of his uh, mental cylinders. And that makes some for some cool stylistic stuff with the doll and the bag and you definitely get some psycho vibes from that, which is which is neat. But I would say it like he managed to kill what seven people, eight people, and his his mental derangement should be a massive liability when it comes to multi-homicides. We're not talking like the most methodical serial killer that waits months in between and different locations and different types of people, right? You're not talking the Zodiac killer here. You're talking about someone who would talk to themselves on the street. And so the fact that he managed to kill eight people and they still don't know where he is, is and they don't know that he's killed eight people. They're like, oh, we just found two bodies. <laughs> yeah, it, I just have to posit it's it's a bridge too far for my suspension of disbelief. Yes, I, I, I agree that, yeah, he, he seems to, his, his competency seems to vary wildly because it seems like in one hand he's a crime of passion. You know, he's he's killing Claire with the bag because it's what at, it's at what's at hand but then he's also setting up the booby trap for the house mother to to climb up and get her and then he's also got enough foresight to like kill the police officer who's in the car that's waiting down the street like did he plan on peter coming back yeah, right? <laughs> like, yeah and did he frame peter we don't know <laughs> yeah it was it, it it was wildly inconsistent between you know a, like 
a super savant and like just a crazy person for lack of a better term but i did look up i looked up the urban legend so it's the babysitter and the man upstairs also known as the babysitter or the sitter is an urban legend that dates back to the 1960s about a teenage girl babysitting children who receives telephone calls from a stalker who continually asks her to check the children the basic storyline has been adapted a number of times in movies and then the 1950 murder of teenage babysitter janet christman 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 um Christmas <laughs> is commonly cited as the source of the legend. Oh, okay. So yeah. So it's based in some fact, and it's been evolved and 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 storyified a little bit, and probably blended from other attacks or like Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah, just like Robin Hood. But yeah, so like, who do you who would you say was your your favorite character if you had to pick one? Oh. Easy game, definitely Barb. Barb, easy. You like Barb? Head and shoulders. Barb was the best character in this film. Yep. I agree. She she pretty good. There are some turtles that can have sex for three days. <laughs> she should start her own <laughs> Animal just... Planet show. Yeah, she just fucking people, best. fucking around with people forever. Yeah, Barb was great. Justice for Barb, right? <laughs> and she, uh... <laughs> there's a little Stranger Things reference. <laughs> yeah, I think I... Jess was all right. Jess was all right. I loved her accent. I know Olivia Hussey was. She was in a very like famous version a filmic version of Romeo and Juliet in the 60s like she she played Juliet so i remember i remember seeing her in yeah in in high school that's the one they showed us and everyone laughed because there was a topless scene in it and we we're all like Hee-hee. the teacher showed us boobies nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but yeah barb was barb was great i really liked seeing andrea martin I liked her. She was the one with the big frizzy afro, mm. even though she didn't have too much to do, but just because she's like a fairly famous name. They needed another kill. They needed another kill, but then she's also gone on to do a lot of great stuff in like the comedy world. So I was like, oh, hey, this is like cool. And then she got her start on Black Christmas. There you go. There's another <laughs> her comedy start. <laughs> another actor getting their start from a horror movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Barb. Barb was uh, Barb was definitely the most like aggressive of the housemates. I think you know, and I don't know if she maybe could be said to have like caused the rampage because she's the one that she like tells the killer to like, you know, he's like rambling and she she calls him out and she's like, you know what, go fuck yourself or whatever. And then that's when he says, "You're all gonna die." And the the voice sounds like the most clear minded in that one instance, right right before she hangs up. Because he just like, and so like, I don't know, maybe Barb triggered him. Yeah, that that, was... that phone call had a lot of, a lot of cocks and c**ts in it. Oh God, just so many. <laughs> it was like, wow, they're, re- they're really going <laughs> hard. And it's, you know, it was, it was like unpleasant <laughs> to listen to. I don't really know what else we can talk about. I, I think, I think aside from the killers, the person that I didn't like the most was probably Peter. Because he was just such an asshole. Peter is Jess's boyfriend. And throughout the movie, Jess finds that she's pregnant and she's going to get an abortion. Which is, you know, in 1974 to talk about it, that seems like that would be real, like real edgy, edgy stuff to even talk about an abortion in a movie from the 70s. And, you know, he's like doing the whole thing like don't i get a say and what about how is this going to affect me and what about my career jess and it was just like you i don't think you were supposed to like peter and i definitely did not like him at all like mm-hmm. from the get-go 
So I actually, yeah, I didn't like him at all either. But I think the biggest mistake narratively this movie made involved Peter. Oh, go for it. And I'm thinking specifically the scene. I can't remember who just died. It was either the older lady. I can't remember her name. So it was either her or the kill after that. But it was like a kill had just happened upstairs, right? And Jess is in the house or has just come home and Peter walks down the stairs. So like on screen, the kill upstairs is like not even a minute old in the runtime of the movie. And we see Peter walk down right, the yeah. stairs. And I just think that that was a, ma- a massive mistake because they made, they made, the movie made itself either whether it made Peter the killer or not, it didn't win because if they made Peter the killer, they just show him walking down from where the kill happened. And so we're like, well, what the fuck? Like (laughs) that's a to B. But now if he's not the killer, you've set him up as so obviously the one who should be the killer. Every single person with a brain in the audience is going to be like, well, it's not going to be him. It's going to be somebody else. So they've already guessed your fake out. Or if you don't fake out and you do it, you're like, well, that was stupid and boring. You're disappointed. So, yeah, I, was, I think it was just a terrible narrative mistake to have him come down the stairs there. It was a red herring for the characters in the movie, but not for the audience, which is why it makes it boring for us, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that th- there's ways that you can do this really well in, in storytelling. Um, yes, and then agreed. There's also ways that you can do it very poorly. So, like, this movie was a way that you did it very poorly, and then I would say, like, like ways of storytelling where you 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 make characters know certain things that other characters don't know but the audience knows that's done really well would be like in breaking bad or something Mm, yeah or or just have him come downstairs five six seven minutes later like put some psychological distance in the runtime of the movie Mm -hmm. for us as the audience you know just like little things like that that it was these kind of things that just makes this movie's like holding the audience's hand as we cross the crosswalk, <laughs> taking micrometer steps along the way. And I'm just like, you, even if you were operating at full cylinders, this is a very basic plot. Like, I can understand yeah. what's happening. You know? yeah, yeah, I mean, Peter, Peter was, yeah, he was a, a shit guy. He was, like, way too self-important. I, I hated how, you know, the way the writing was, you know, and maybe this was a choice to make him seem as tone deaf as he was, which is ironic because he's a piano player. <laughs> but he... <laughs> I mean, did you hear him play? It sounded like shit. It sounded so bad. And then he gets mad and he's smashing a Steinway piano. Are you kidding me? Are you going to pay for that, Peter, on your musician's <laughs> salary? Come on. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. He's like the Kurt Cobain of pianos. <laughs> yeah. I want to sort of explain, you know, elaborate a little bit on why... Peter sucks, but I will divert a little bit to say, like, having gone to university for music, I can attest that that is the exact number of people who are watching university concerts at all times. It's always three people or even fewer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that that part of the movie, they got exactly right. But, like, there's a, there's a point where Jess is in distress. Obviously, she's dealing with this pregnancy and her desire to get an abortion, which is a huge monumental choice that she's making. Plus her friend is dead or missing and she's just been informed of the murder that happened to the 13 year old. And then Peter is still like, Hey, that's all neat and everything, but here's what I'm doing. And I quit music. So can we talk about me? And you're just like, Peter, now is not the time for your bullshit. <laughs> want to marry me? <laughs> yes. You want to get married? Can we talk about this now? Now isn't the time, Peter. <laughs> it's the holidays. What better time, right? I just think it was a narrative mistake to even make him such a shitty person because now 
there's no there's no other potential suspect. So the audience were all like, okay, Peter seems like a shitty killer. It's probably him. But then because, you know, maybe it's maybe this worked at the time with this movie and it doesn't age well. But every savvy audience is like, well, they're painting it as so obviously him. So it's so obviously not him. But yeah. because if it's him, they just they just did one plus one equals two. I I think And the, that doesn't make for good movie making. They made it very obviously that wasn't him though, and it was done on purpose. Because when you see when you see the killer's eyes, they're like these weird, like orangey brown oh, yeah. eyes, right? Like really yep. It's mm-hmm. like kind of in an, a natural color, and then you know Peter's eyes are blue because you can see him peeking out of like the trees. So you already know like right away, or not right away, but you know like very early on that the killer is not Peter, and it just sets up the ending where you know Jess kills him because she thinks mm-hmm. he's he is the killer. Um, is but, that what? Then, so is that, that what happened? Sorry, I just just because I want to talk about that ending because I was confused and I don't know I was trying to take notes or something, but. At the end, they're down in the basement, and Jess kills Peter. Is that what happens? Yeah. I'm like ninety okay. percent sure that that's what happened. Like in in self defense, right? Because like he, first of all, what a weirdo just breaks into the basement. It's like, hey, I heard you're down here. It's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she's I mean, under the impression that he's the killer, which is why she's like backing up. She's got the poker, and he's like, oh, I just want to talk to you, but I'm like, nah, and he's like walking towards her. So I think I think she killed him. I think that. It's a good theory. It's it's ambiguous because Jess gets knocked out and we don't actually get any more information out of her. We don't know if it was Peter or if the killer himself came down, killed Peter, and just frightened her enough to get unable Mm. to talk for several hours. Right? We don't know. It's one or the other, and they're both just as plausible because... We don't fucking know anything. Well, and that's that's another. I'm sure that's another thing that bothered you, Luke. Is you, you know your your favorite reason about like uh, I can't get answers from a person who is an eyewitness because they're asleep or passed out. Like, like you know that happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know if I was like a that. cop on the scene, be like, well, maybe we wake her up or we wait around and protect her because you know we just did find seven bodies. There was a. Cop we don't just leave her in her house. No, at the very end, they're just yeah. like, okay, well, no, see there you was. Later, Jess. When it zooms out, what? you see a cop standing at the front door. But yeah, that but was like, during the credits, saying... so you probably turn off the movie by then. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking no, at I saw Claire's face cop. in the window. I didn't notice the cop. Yeah, you but... see Claire's face, and you see a cop standing at the front door. Oh, okay. You know what? Okay, look, look. If you're a cop and you've just had one of your fellow officers had their throat slit sitting in the front you stay with the last witness <laughs> you stay in the room with them especially when they're like even <laughs> even if you think you have the killer like it just i i was i was blown away at the ineptitude of the police in this movie yeah so i was just like i mean they were uh. all they were all bad and the fact that at the end yeah you're right they're just like okay well she's sleeping so we're gonna let her go betty bye anyway a bunch of her friends were murdered in this house i guess it's cool if you sleep in your own bed like take her to a hotel take her to a motel mm. you know what hell lock her like throw her in holding for a night or something like give her a bed at the police station or something like why does she have to be it like why are they like okay well good night jess we'll see you in the morning it's christmas like off we go it didn't you know didn't make any it's like the it's like the opposite of due diligence (laughs) it's like figuring out how to handcuff yourself a little bit more than you have to in operating in your job undo undiligence that's the opposite (laughs) exactly yeah 
Yeah. It, instead of going above and beyond, you go, you know, below and before. Yeah. And I also like at the end when they figure out that the calls are coming from inside the house, which again, when that line came out or when, when I realized that like they're tracing the call, I kind of sat up. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be a calls are coming from inside the house moment. And as soon as, you know, we've seen that the one, the one officer Nash, I think his name was, has been proven to be incompetent. He doesn't get the, like the joke. He's Sergeant Dumbass. Sergeant Dumbass. And as soon as the lieutenant is like, okay, here's what you have to do. Don't tell her the killer's in the house. Make sure she leaves and, you know, don't fuck this up. And then as soon as he calls, he's like, hey, Jess, the killer's inside the house. You got to get out of there. It's just like, of course, this guy was like so bad. You painted him to be like, he could do no, he could, there was no possible way for him to come through because they're like, this guy is officer screws up every day. Anyway, it's all on you. Mm. Officer screws up every day. Don't let us down. Yeah, he was bad, but in that moment, Jess was much, much worse <laughs> because she knows people are dying or or at least missing. <laughs> she knows a, at least a 13-year-old has been killed and she's been informed by a police officer that, that this person is in the house. And what does she do? Oh, I, I could probably take him with a fire poker. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go down to the basement. So, uh, well, like, she conveniently uh, locked herself in, actually. How did she do that? Yeah, well, I don't know, but remember when the random vigilantes come up and they're just like mm, yeah. hey there's a thir- oh, yeah. you hear about the 13 year old girl that died it's like by the way you sorry to scare you but you should like lock your windows and doors and then was it it's jess and phil phil yeah yeah it's jess and phil that are oh yeah like this door is never locked and they go around closing all the windows and locking all the doors and i think like they show a shot of jess opening the front door locking it from the outside and then closing the door so that you later see when she's running away from the killer and she's trying to get out the front door it doesn't open so she had locked herself in i don't know i mean how they that shouldn't works. be making they shouldn't be making doors like that like yeah, that's, that's, a, not... that's a fire hazard for sure <laughs> it's a fire hazard for sure it's a murder hazard too but you know i i like that this movie focused on the the ladies in the sorority house mostly and everybody else around was like just as much of a dumbass yeah i mean all of those like auxiliary characters at the beginning and even throughout the run, I just I feel like I'm watching a weird Rorschach test of a movie because they're acting in a way that would be indecipherable to me as if someone was trying to make a parody of them in the mm. movie. And so I'm in this kind of like uncanny valley of do the people making this movie and in this movie know what they look like and sound like when they're doing this? Yeah, and I wonder if and, that like I'm thinking that yeah if someone was trying to exaggerate your mannerisms to make fun of you they would just be doing exactly what you're doing right now (laughs) and do you know that it's kind of like i mean this is maybe tangential but it's kind of like why trump is actually a really difficult persona to make comedy out of because if you exaggerate and make fun of and parody trump's eccentricities you just sound like him yeah like there's there's no gap there's no gap between what trump is like as himself and what a comedian making fun of trump would be like yeah there's no exaggeration left (laughs) peak exaggeration yeah so so then it's 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 little shit like that in the especially in the dialogue that makes me think like i know that it is but there's a part of me there's like a subconscious part of my brain is like was this movie supposed to be serious yeah, because the characters are acting in a way that no comedian making fun of them would do different. Mm. So that's I, that's just like those are the kind of things that rip me out of a narrative. Yeah, I think like the the movie the the people aren't meant to be 
serious. I don't think it's meant to be made as a serious movie. I think like mm. the horror movies are are by and large not they're not they're obviously not seen as serious cinema. There's no Oscar for best horror movie, right? There's no like the the and and you know right, for whatever right. reason like the the genre it being a genre film is not like regarded as like high cinema, which is starting to change and there's some really good cinema there, but yeah, none of these performances were Oscar worthy. I think the aside from the the police station joke, the best bit of physical comedy was when the house mother was putting her hand over the poster of the two people, the two naked <laughs> yeah, people yeah, and the yeah, peace yeah. sign. That was I thought that was really good. Which like Claire's dad, who's this like, they're like, please cast the weediest looking guy in the world, and they're like, you'll do. Get over here. And so he's in the the house, and there's this big black and white poster of a circle of flowers with two naked people lying in it, sort of making the shape of the peace sign. And she just like puts her hand over the butt and holds it there for the whole conversation. Like he's not going to notice it. And for what it's worth, he doesn't seem, he doesn't comment on it, but she's just like, oh, well that's covered. Like, don't worry about it. I got my hand on it. I thought that just was quite the, funny. Just, just the judgiest motherfucker, eh? <laughs> the whole time he's just judging everyone all the time. But he's not doing like anything either. Like he looks like he's so sort of like mild and milk toast that he's not going to like put up a fuss. He's even out there, you know, helping search for the 13 year old because he's like, well, I guess, well, maybe, you know, if they find Claire too great, but I, you know, okay, I'll help because you asked me. And it just looks like he doesn't, he doesn't have a spine for lack of a better word. Like if, if yeah, he didn't seem like he was mad enough that his daughter was missing. And everyone's just like, oh, she's probably just with her boyfriend. And he's like, well, that's not, no. And nobody's believing her. And he just kind of gives up before he even tries, I found. He would make a great bureaucrat. <laughs> no, I don't think he's nearly hateful enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's like, he, he's got enough clout with a not nearly enough impressiveness in the world to be a really center of the bullseye bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah, he's like a bureaucrat grade <laughs> 17 or something from Futurama. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, go ahead, Alex. You were saying something? Yeah, so kind of going back to my point at the very beginning about how I thought this was a much better Friday the 13th. So not saying that this was a great movie, but like I like I, I think it, it did everything Friday the 13th wanted to do, but much better. So kind of the characters, yeah, they were stupid. They were nonsensical. They had dumb dialogue. They made bad decisions. But I was so much more invested in these characters in this movie than I was with the characters in Friday the 13th, right? So like, mm -hmm. so for Jess, the main girl, she's she's seen as a, a strong feminist character, right? Like stands up for herself, knows what she wants, and like is very determined about that. Yeah. You know, Peter, he's, he, he's like the the unlikable guy but like there's enough about his like there's there's like what i'm trying to say is that throughout the movie there's enough back background dialogue and like kind of backstory given to characters that makes them more makes makes me more invested in them throughout the movie right like we know peter is a a musician and you know i like i'm not the I don't, I don't have a musical ear, but from listening to what he played, I think he sucks. <laughs> and obviously he didn't do well because he was smashing the piano. Yeah, he didn't yeah. get a good grade or whatever. Barb was very, like, as foul mouth and as, you know, rude as she is, she was very funny to me. Yeah, she was over the top in, like, the right kind of way, I think. And, yeah, I liked her. Yeah, L Lieutenant Fuller, like, yeah, he was, he was the... He actually tried to solve 
the problem and like went about it in i would i would say at a semi-logical way right like he he went he was he was the most competent person in the movie but even he got blinded by his own theory like it has to be peter so that's the only like option i'm going to consider right which is part Mm -hmm. of why he he leaves jess alone at the end of the movie because he assumes he got the killer and i just think that level of myopic policing is a huge liability and probably something that you would hope would get taught at detective school i don't know but luke (laughs) at that point we're already 95 minutes into this movie to further go down that would have had to make this movie longer which i don't think you would have liked as well yeah i don't think so I did like all the scenes where where Lieutenant Fuller was, you know, explaining how the phone tap worked and saying like, okay, if he calls, it's gonna ring here. We're gonna listen. You know, you gotta keep him on the line as long as you can. And then we got to see the scenes of of the guy back at the phone line, the phone company, having to chase down where the call was coming from. Which, yeah, I don't know if if that's how they did it in the seventies, like. It's a miracle they've ever traced a phone call ever because <laughs> having to run down just these corridors of tubes with wires and, and getting the, the interchanges is, it was, it was nuts. And I guess, I mean, that I don't know if that was the technology at the time. It seems like I have no reason to believe it was not incorrect or it was incorrect. So I thought that was cool. And like he was trying with the tools he had, he tried the best. But then, yeah, like you said, Luke, he left... And he left it in charge of officer always messes up every single day, which like I shouldn't have, you know, been in the police agency. Yeah. And like for that officer, like he was as as incompetent and as like dumb as he was, he he, he was funny enough that it was like, okay, I'm not going to completely write you off. You know, Mrs. Mack, the house mother, she's just like... Oh, Mrs. Mack, that's her name. Yeah, she's just the biggest alcoholic. She's got booze hidden literally everywhere, right? Like, in the closet, in, B, in a Bible. is like what she said. She's like, B is for booze. She's got it hidden <laughs> in the toilet. Like, in the toilet tank. To- yeah. And just... <laughs> yeah, but I didn't get that. Like, wasn't this her house? Why couldn't she just have booze in her house? No, it's it's a sorority house. I don't think, like, she actually owns it. Mm. I, oh, okay. She's probably, like, the caretaker and, like cleans up and does grocery shopping and all that stuff and probably gets paid to do that it didn't seem like she i thought she just sort of lived there and sort of took care of the girls and yeah cooked their meals and stuff but fair enough fair enough yeah and then phil phil was fine was not really interesting but not super boring either yeah and i I, I just she was the one who wanted she like always wanted to help out you know she went to like go and and go in the search for the the missing girl and you know she was there literally as a supporting character like she supported jess she was like oh you know talking and being a good friend but in terms of her own motivations there was there wasn't too many yeah and even though like claire died in the first five minutes you're given enough background with her through other characters dialogue that's like that tells you oh she's a good girl she doesn't drink very much she's responsible and went to bed early so that she could pack to go away you know they they had these characters were as unrealistic as they were, they were real enough that I, I, I was invested, which is why I think this was a better Friday. I agree. Yeah, I, I do agree. And, and Better than the worst movie we've done? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I, I do. I, I agree. And I like, yeah, I, I didn't hate all of the characters. I hated more of like the Peters, but I think that's the way he acted. And, and bravo to him for acting in such a hissably you know bad way and so the 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 desire to like the characters or to to be invested in the characters more and the 
tropes of the horror genre that were being born in this era, for me, really kind of elevated this movie higher than uh, I think maybe its quality might suggest, but just because of the POV stuff, the, the killer being like completely unpredictable, the idea of even like having a last girl, like a girl that survives, all of that sort of being created in this in this film. I don't know if it was like the creator, but it sort of starting to come to form and then being polished later on is really cool just to see the root of something. Like I think that that for me was like very interesting. As I've gone through this podcast and like getting more into horror movies and like learning a little bit more of them as we go, I thought that was a cool like you said, Luke, a very good educational horror movie to watch for a history of horror class. You know, would I watch it again? We'll ask that question in a bit. But <laughs> do you have any final thoughts or anything else we didn't touch on in this movie? We kind of didn't even go through the plot too much, but <laughs> guy tries to kill a whole bunch of people in the house and does mostly. Anything else before we before we sort of move on into the the end bit of the show? Yeah, a couple notes. Ooh, yeah. So the first one when we were i think it was luke that asked it in the intro is this set in toronto it actually is there was a shot and you see the street signs stanwick and no was it was it stanwick and center street i think oh yeah nice and or stanwick wikipedia don't you no no i actually like i I made notes (laughs) and i typed it out so swanwick Ah. avenue by main street and i like google maps it it's actually in toronto so it was was shot on location and was set in toronto yeah that's awesome Little little fun trivia. I do love that as a Canadian. It's like, oh yay, Canada's in things. Yeah, that's great. I definitely got Canada vibes from the telephone guy, like just a little bit his accent and just his kind yes. of mannerisms. I was like, oh, that guy's definitely Canadian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that guy's for sure a Canadian. <laughs> and also like the the setting of of people being outside in the winter and like not wearing a hat is just like it's so cold in the winter in Canada. And people are still just like, I don't need a hat. It'll be fine. Like going out like that's such a, that was, that was like, it just looked like a Canadian winter to me, which was cool. Yeah. There was, there was the oil drum fire (laughs) that they were like huddling around when they were searching in the park. And then also (laughs) perfectly timed carolers to show up at the front door for Billy to, you know, do the kill on Barb. Yeah. Perfectly Perfectly timed. timed. (laughs) Couple things from this movie that were I guess pleasantly reminiscent of future horror was I could definitely tell like James Wan slash Lee Winnell were influenced mm. by this because there's there were three very very clear insidious things that would have been maybe not first in this movie but so like when he's talking on the phone it was very reminiscent of the scene in Insidious where Re- Re- uh, Renee Roseburn's character is listening on the baby monitor. And just the style and the cadence and the kind of incoherence of the voice was very similar. So I thought that was kind of, that was fun. And then the first kill, when the killer kills Claire, he's hiding kind of behind this sheen of a piece of plastic that I think like a dress hangs in or something. And that was reminiscent of one of the monsters is behind the kind of webbing of the crib in Insidious. And you can only see their outline a little bit. And then near the end, some of the like kind of still shots of each room around the house and even like the light at the beginning of insidious and the opening credits there's a big light that looks almost the same as that in black christmas and then the credits are just like these kind of lonely shots of empty rooms or isolated houses and so 
and and just the aesthetic looked similar. So I was like, oh, okay, this is. It would be a mm. huge coincidence if this, if the guys who made Insidious didn't have a some homage to pay to this movie too. So I, I it hasn't been much secret that I am not a fan of this film, but I thought that those things were kind of neat because I really like Insidious. So. I think also the striking shot of the killer, like when the killer is looking through the, the crack in the door and it's all black around and his eye is that mm-hmm. really bright brown, like that is kind of similar to the, the demon, the lipstick face demon who's like, oh uh, yeah, especially in, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our very first instance of our daytime is safety when he like appears behind Josh and it's just that like very sharp contrast. Like I think, you know, I think maybe they, that's probably been redone in tons and tons and tons of horror. But yeah, just again, see the, the root of some of those things mm. paying, paving well, their way through, which is cool. Those spe- those scenes specifically were very reminiscent of the unmasked Michael Myers in Halloween. Like the eye and the kind of tussled hair when we get those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. really weird oblique shots of the killer. That's what made me think of was uh, unmasked Michael Myers. Yeah. In the first one. Yeah. So... I think, yeah, for my sort of final thoughts, just, again, the fact that this is such an inspiration to future horror movies is is pretty cool. And it is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a pride to be like, yeah, like a lot of the coolest stuff that you like in horror movies now is thanks to this Canadian horror movie. So, uh, <laughs> oh, Canada, you know, you're welcome, the world. We did it. <laughs> so I thought that was... I thought that was great. Should we move in to our scariest part of the entire film? Or movie, Spotum, or Spotef, however you want to call it. Sure. And again, scary being a relative uh, <laughs> relative term of judging this movie, what is the f- most frightening part for you? Why don't you go first, Alex? For me, the scariest part, it's kind of a tie, but it's either going to be the really uncomfortable phone calls and just like, not when Barb is talking, because that was just funny. But, like, when the killer is just, like, screaming things into the phone and, like, changing the voice and pitch of and of their voice, sound, making baby sounds. And then I think it's, it's also implied that as he's on the phone, he's killing, like, Phil at the same time. And you can hear her dying in the background. And he's just yelling all these things about, like, you know, killing babies, you know, alluding to the, her wanting to getting an abortion and all that all that stuff it was just really uncomfortable i felt really 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 uncomfortable during those and then i i guess the other scary part is when he's chasing her and then you don't you never actually see his whole body or anything but uh, her hair gets grabbed that was pretty scary oh yeah yeah when she's on the stairs and he grabs like a handful of her hair that was you only like it's super quick and you just see his hand pop out yeah that was it for me what about you luke There was no part of this movie I found even a little bit scary, but I think the most real life... Luke's jaded from horror movies now. The most real life scary part of this movie was the bureaucrat, because the banality of evil is a real thing, Mm. and giving and just when people who have power who aren't good at anything get to make decisions, that's when things go terrible. So the bureaucrat was the most scary part of this movie for me. What, the dad? Yeah, just because he reminded me of people who like want to tell other people what to do, and they themselves don't bring any value to the world. So I didn't see that from him. I no. I don't okay. know if this guy does or not. Did he tell people what he what to do? I thought he just like trailed along. Well, he was just judging, and then would like 
he was judging everybody and then you could just tell he's the kind of person that would want to like pass laws or rules against things other people do he just doesn't like Mm. for being a really shallow movie that's that's a quite deep take (laughs) well i'm projecting psychology onto this guy but that that's fine the part that scared me is knowing that there are people like that (laughs) in the world (laughs) yeah that's fair for me, I think that, yeah, the, 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 the one call where he quotes back a line that Jess has said when the killer's there and he calls back and she's, she's talked about, you know, the abortion is just like getting a wart removed. And he says that on the phone, like the first time when it's just like, oh my God, the, like the killer is sticking around and can hear their conversation. He's not just like breaking in and killing and then leaving. Like, I think that for me to to sort of plant the seed that the killer is inside the house the entire time. But I thought that was like the most tense part because it's like, oh, they're not safe ever because this killer is up there at all times. I think for like the environment of the movie, that was probably the most, the most scary, but there was, there was very little in the way of jump scares or, you know, big reveals or anything like that. Even like the, the deaths, the, the, the cop with the throat slashed was not like, that wasn't scary, but I think just the, the realization that like, oh, this killer is actively listening to whatever you're saying. So even if you are trying to call the police for help, like there's a chance he can hear what you're saying, know your plan and adapt to it. And maybe that's giving him more agency than the killer had, but that that's just what did it for me. Well, <laughs> what do we want to rate this one out of? What do we, what do we have? I don't know, out of mysterious phone calls, five creepy phone calls. What do you, what do you say? Luke, why don't you go first? Because I feel like you're going to be the, the lowest take on, on our our rating scale this week. I guess we probably can't rate it out of five cocks and c- No, we can't. <laughs> We're not allowed. I'm set. Well, this movie didn't exasperate me as much as Army of Darkness did or even Friday the 13th. So it's not as bad as those two in my in my book. So it's not the worst movie for me that we've done. Although I did yell at the screen when Jess <laughs> went upstairs instead of out of the house when she was warned. Like I she yelled was at locked her. I was like, in. What the fuck, Jess? <laughs> Go out a window. There's a killer in your house. <laughs> like have even a, a iota of survival. <laughs> no iotas. None. Zero. <laughs> Zero of them. But I, I guess, you know, being true to my tendencies and inclinations, I don't care if it's the 40s, the 70s, the 2010s are now. I don't like bad scripts. I don't like bad acting. I don't like nonsensical decision-making. And I don't like terrible plots. Fair enough. And so <laughs> the fact that this movie has an interesting kind of like academic nature to it for other movies is, is interesting. But for its own sake, yeah, I'm, I'd give it 0. 0.75. 0.75. 0. 0.75. Sure. What about you, you, Alex? What are you giving this one out of phone calls? I'm going to give it a 2.5 phone calls out of 5. Not a great movie, but not bad. And I think it's cool to be able to see, you know, how it influenced lots of slashers. And yeah, I, I really liked all the POV shots. The way they used shadows and camera angles was great. And I didn't hate the plot. Like I said, I found the third act intriguing, and I, I quite like the third act of the movie. So yeah, two two 2.5 creepy phone calls out of 5. Nice. 
Yeah, I think this is probably going to be the one where we are at our widest spread on enjoyability, but watching this movie, this was also like different because it was the first one we watched separately due to our lockdown situation, but watching this one, it wasn't like it wasn't scary. I was not scared during this movie, but just having this toe in the world of the horror movie and the history of it and and finding that there is so many more layers and depths in the horror genre that I, that I didn't know existed is something that's very appealing to me. And so I'm starting to enjoy these movies more, you know, for the historical context of them and for the, the, you know, maybe it's more of an academic take, but just because this one was such a, you know, like a seed or a root of the slasher genre for all of its foibles, I still am going to give this one a three and a half, 3.5 out of five because i i did have a good time watching it and it, it it's one of those ones where i was like i kind of want to look into this more and actually after the movie ended i did the research on john saxon who was in all these horror movies and and had a career as a you know a, an actor and he only recently died i think he died in january of 2020 so like that that sort of legacy was cool to me and i kind of want to learn more now but so yeah 3.5 for me but i would not watch it again so <laughs> I've seen it. I've done it. I don't think I'll, I'll need to watch it another time. But <laughs> Oh, man. If we watched this movie together, I guarantee I would have annoyed the shit out of Alex. <laughs> because in my head, every three minutes, I was like, why are you doing that? And if, and if you two had been in the same room as me watching this, I would have vocalized all those thoughts. And it would have been incessant. <laughs> yeah. I will say, as as weird as this experience was to watch this separately and then talk about it afterwards, it was nice to be able to watch a movie in complete silence for once. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are bad audience members. <laughs> I will own that. But, yo, I would not watch this again. No. And Luke, it's your new favorite movie. No, you're shaking your head. I'm just not doing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if i wanted to watch a good version of this movie i'd watch halloween and insidious again mm. and i think there is a a remake of black christmas as well either a 2009 or a 2016 or something yeah um, yeah i saw something about that that might be interesting to investigate a little bit later down the line but for now we can put it to bed and um you know because it's christmas even though this is a bonus episode i think we should cheer something because it's christmas do we have some cheers alex do you have a cheer yeah i, I guess i could go first the last week and a half i've been having some car problems it just like wouldn't start and i'd have to boost it every day which was annoying and frustrating and so i got it looked at and i needed a new alternator so i got that replaced and it was expensive but everything's fixed now so i guess that's my cheer that you know i don't have to worry about this one thing and you know what it happened to be the best week that this could have happened because i was working from home anyway this week so i didn't really have to drive it was like really nice and warm outside so i didn't have to deal like struggle with a car in like sub-zero temperatures and when it was snowing so i guess that's my nice. cheer small victories hey yeah. yeah i'm looking forward to when this comes out this will be christmas day so it's happening but i made some plans to because i'm not going to be visiting family this year i'm gonna uh we're gonna i'm gonna do a, a, a zoom call with my girlfriend later and we're gonna cook like christmas dinner together but over zoom so i'm looking forward to that and, and having put the plan in for the time today as we record this my weeks before christmas is very exciting so i'm it's uh, I'm, I'm cheering something that i'm looking forward to unorthodox but i'm doing it anyway <laughs>
Well, with this episode coming out on Christmas Day, you could listen to your excitement about doing that while you're doing it. That's true. I sure could. I think that would be that would be a little bit too close into the narcissistic realms for me. But uh, you okay, know, question, question: Can you break the fourth wall of reality? <laughs> yes, I'm high fiving future Billy right now, so she can she can get it three weeks from now. Yeah. What are you cheering, Luke? Well, I guess this is going to be a somewhat controversial cheer. Oh. But with us being in this kind of new extra restricted time with COVID, I, I've started rewatching the TV show Lost Oh. on Amazon. And I'm about halfway through season three right now. And I know that Lost is a show that is very polarizing for people and is generally considered by the commentariat to be a show that lost its mojo and is in the final analysis not that's the name of the show and i would say (laughs) yeah and i would say i don't i i think lost is a is a really really awesome first stab at what you can do with long form narrative and yes when it gets to the part you know spoilers for lost but by the time season four season five roll around and there's in they get to time travel and nukes it does seem like it's jumped the shark a little bit. There but are sharks in considering Lost. Considering that it was like on... <laughs> consider, well, there's definitely polar bears. But just like the first three seasons of Lost are such a riveting mystery and the characters are so compelling. And we're talking about a show that came out like before, like other than The Wire and The Sopranos, there weren't many of these long form narratives that left mysteries all the time you know and you know and both those shows were on hbo so this was like the only network attempt that i can think of really that had this like telling a one story over six seasons and it's just really fun to be able to stream them because you're not waiting a week on a cliffhanger all the time with and you don't have any commercials you know and i just i i think it's such a it's a show worth going back to after a decade now that it's been off the air for like thinking about how television has evolved. And you really see a lot of these like similar to black Christmas, I guess you see a lot of these nuggets of the beginning of long form narrative that you get better in breaking bad, that you get better in game of Thrones, but (laughs) lost kind of, well, you know, (laughs) game of Thrones maybe lost its way too. (laughs) but I don't know. Just, it's a good show. And I remember watching it, as a you know 10 years ago and watching it again now and, and just really enjoying it now nice. so i i'm trending again towards thinking that lost is actually a pretty good show ah oh, well how about that you know what i actually have never seen lost so mm. <laughs> i will well, make sure not to listen to the spoilers you said <laughs> you didn't say too much <laughs> okay still well it's over 10 years i know i know i know i have no reason <laughs> someone as culturally savvy as you do not get a decade <laughs> yeah. i should have i should have seen lost uh, uh, yeah, a decade ago, but but yeah, that's just one thing I never it never grabbed me. I never never got into it, but it's pretty cool. It's cool to revisit old shows. But here we are, Christmas morning. You're listening. We're at the end of this episode, and yeah, I guess there's nothing to do but the credits and the socials and ask people to buy something from our merch store. So I'll do that unless you have anything else to add, gentlemen. Nope, got shakes. We got shrugs. Alrighty, well. Thank you to everybody who listens to Nothing to Fear every week and for our bonus episodes. We appreciate you all so very much. 
If you are able, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Subscribe, like. The downloads are, are really helpful to get, and it is a great a great way to support the podcast you love by leaving a review, and it only takes you a minute. It can be your Christmas gift to us if you haven't left one right now. You can you can go into your iTunes and leave it. You can do it while you're listening to this thing. It helps us rise up the charts. It helps us get more visibility and we grow and that's what we want to do with the show we want to reach more people uh if you don't want to leave a review even easier is just tell somebody about the show just like say hey i'm listening to this podcast about horror movies it's called nothing to fear uh, that is also very helpful word of mouth really helps a lot isn't that harder to do if that requires you to actually know i someone. mean <laughs> i mean you text somebody you just say hey friend i think you might like this show My- that's our next podcast someone to know someone to know That'd be a good interview podcast title. Okay, we're copyright. That's our. That's ours. If anybody else uses something to know as a podcast, you're but not but it has to be someone you disagree with, and you spell it the word N O. Someone to know. <laughs> and then because it's past oh, tense, you it. could do someone to known, but with the N O. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it'd be none. How would you spell N O W N? But there's a hyphen. <laughs> right anyway please tell your friends about our fun show that is very intelligent and you can also follow us on all the socials you can follow us at nothing to fear nothing to fear podcast over on instagram nothing to fear p1 at twitter my instagram is billy by design i before e when spelling billy and there are underscores between the words alex can we follow you anywhere no nope nope luke where can we find more of you you can you can only follow Alex if you're a specter and uh, he has sex with the wrong person. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a shout out to one of our episodes. <laughs> hey, Billy, you're not the only one who gets to, you know, self-reference of the <laughs> yin-yang. Just really true fiction. Fun you made a Stranger Things reference because today part one of our Stranger Things episode came out. So oh, yeah. That was Very fun. exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Alex, for writing the music. Obviously, thank you to my host for coming. I haven't like ever thanked you on the show before, but thank you for coming week after week and being on the show. Thank you to Katie Rogers for the artwork and the design of the logo. And as well, we've had a couple episodes with some special artwork that she's designed for the show, which I hope have been well received. They look really, really cool, and I can't wait for people to, to see them, but you will have already seen them. Uh, you can check her stuff out at <laughs> Put underscore that down. That's Katie Rogers. And buy some merch. It's on Tee Public, if you want. And tune in on Monday when we're going to be sending 2020 a very, very vocal message where we watch Get Out. And until then, they're just movies. There's nothing to fear. Goodbye, friends.